You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Leaked sources down, maybe for good. Double Flag seems to be selling bogus data on the black market, and where, we ask, is the Ripper review? Fancy Bear is back, actually she never really left, now snuffling at British and German networks. Saudi Arabia remains on Shamoon alert, the Drydex banking trojan has reappeared in an improved version, and tech support scammers get scammed. Don't try this at home. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, January 27, 2017. Leaked source, gray market purveyors of access to stolen passwords, is down, possibly for good. Someone with the handle LTD, claiming to be in a position to know, said yesterday on an online forum that leaked source had been raided by U.S. authorities, shut down and gone for good. The U.S. Justice Department has primly declined to comment, but the word on the virtual street is that the feds took them down. Leaked source had specialized in finding and selling stolen credentials they discovered in various dark web dumps. One of the bigger breaches whose results they scooped up involved Twitter, with 32 million accounts, Dailymotion, with 85.5 million records, and Weebly, with 43 million accounts. Leaked source had been much criticized for their trade. People generally believe they should have quietly notified victims, as opposed to cracking passwords and making them available for anyone. But journalists and others have made more or less reluctant use of leaked source in their reporting. More evidence of the lack of honor among thieves emerges at week's end. Double Flag, the criminal group who's been selling data stolen from large Chinese ISPs, claims to have stolen data on 126 million individuals from U.S. Cellular. And of course, they'll sell the data to you. But U.S. Cellular tells HackRead they've investigated, and Double Flag's wares are bogus. There's been no breach, and it's all a lot of hooey. Is Double Flag about to get a bad review on Ripper? SecureWorks reports that Fancy Bear, the Russian GRU outfit famous for compromising the U.S. Democratic Party's National Committee last spring, has been found in a British television network, unnamed for legal considerations. Fancy Bear established persistence in July 2015 and wasn't detected for a year, which is interesting given Fancy Bear's relative noisiness compared to its sibling Cozy Bear. As happened with the DNC, Fancy Bear seems most interested in email, and not only business email, but also email exchanged among reporters and producers working on stories. SecureWorks believes Fancy Bear got into the network back in July of 2015 and stayed undetected for a good 12 months. 
Such quiet persistence is interesting because Fancy Bear has the reputation of being pretty noisy. Her cousin Cozy Bear is the quiet one, which seems right given that they're respectively the GRU, that's Russian military intelligence, the equivalent of the US DIA and NSA, and the FSB, which is the KGB's successor organization. German authorities are also seeing an increase in activity that looks like fancy bears. This pawing at media and political targets strikes many observers as battlespace preparation for this year's round of national elections in Europe. Diplomatic sources in Russia's London embassy dismiss the allegations as Western nostalgia for the Cold War. Threat Connect has devoted some attention to fleshing out the indicators of compromise by Fancy Bear that appeared in the U.S. intelligence community's Grizzly Step report. Threat Connect's observations are interesting and a reminder of the distinction between evidence and intelligence. Saudi worries about Shamoon persist. Intel Security has an overview of their current research into Shamoon 2's details and WAPAC Lab reports signs that the malware is turning up in the shipping industry as well. The well-known banking trojan Drydex is back, and Flashpoint says the malware now employs a new user account control bypass method. It's now trickier and more evasive. See Flashpoint's report for the details. And finally, you know the Microsoft support scam? Not, we hasten to note, affiliated with Microsoft in any way. It's also known as the help desk scam. Someone calls you and says over the call center boiler room background noise that they're from Microsoft support and that your computer's infected with a virus and that you should give them your password so they can fix your machine. Well, they recently called Ars Technica, which decided to play some virtual whack-a-mole with them. The caller said he was from the Technical Support Center and that they were going to help him speed up his computer by purging junk files that they detected. The Ars staffer kept the guy on the line for two hours, feigning cluelessness and recording their scam on a virtual machine. He wrote about it in Ars Technica in an article called You Took So Much Time to Joke Me. Read the whole thing, and in the meantime, remind your trusting friends and family that no one from the Technical Support Center is going to call them. Ever. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. 
Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Joining me once again is Dale Drew. He's the Chief Security Officer at Level 3 Communications. Uh, Dale, your group recently put out a paper uh, outlining some of the threats that you all are seeing from the Asia-Pacific region. What can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, thank you. I mean, we, we've been trying to get a lot more focused on uh, sort of the cause and effect piece of, of threat intelligence. And so we're doing a lot more focus on particular regions and particular actors. And so as an example, we, we did a, an analysis on, on Asia-Pac and uh, tried to sort of uncover some data to determine if Asia-Pac is acting in a, in a way different than any other region. Mm. Um, you know, I'd say that we, we, track, we track about 8 million uh, malware victims per day in Asia Pac, um, and that's versus about 28 uh, million in the U.S. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's there's a pretty much a rolling average of eight million uh, compromised victims uh, on a daily basis within Asia Pac. Um, you know, the the other interesting uh, thing is is that you know China has the second most malware victims per day in Asia Pac, and so, you know, from an infrastructure perspective, you know, most compromises occur because of phishing attempts, right? Where a bad guy sends an email to a victim, have them click on the uh, email, and then they become a malware victim as a result. So it shows you the the not only how compromisable the infrastructure itself is because of lack of patching uh, practices and things like that, but also how susceptible the end user are uh, from still clicking on those emails that that end up getting them compromised. And what do you see in terms of rate of growth of of these attacks? Is is the uh, Asia-Pacific region um, growing faster than the rest of the world? I would say that that uh, the Asia Pacific region is growing um, at a, a little bit of a faster rate than than say the United States, which is uh, right now the the largest set of compromised uh, machines, but. Um, you know, but but for, as an example, some specific regions in Asia Pac, the Philippines, as an example, that rate has doubled uh, quarter over quarter, uh, and we we largely think that's because of of uh, of accessibility uh, and use of IoT devices in in the Philippines. Mm. Asia Pac in general is growing at a at a at a fairly um, small rate. Uh, not as fast as the U.S., but you know some some regions like the Philippines are absolutely uh, doubling in size um, every quarter. And and how does this all align with you know populations versus available co- connectivity, you know, compared to places like the United States? I you know it tends to be a direct correlation to population as well as density of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, we we are seeing a definite trend where um, a change in that trend where it used to be. Uh, predominantly, if you were hosting infrastructure, the country who was hosting the most infrastructure was the most compromisable. And that's why the U.S. is always on the top of the charts, because data center environment, um, you know, critical uh, uh, infrastructure like DNS infrastructure and hosting providers uh, being at the top of that list in the U.S., uh, that, that trend is changing. Now it's turning into end users who are operating things like IoT. Uh, and the ability for those end users to click on uh, phishing email. 
And so we're seeing a lot more compromisable uh, systems based not on where business hosted infrastructure is, but where the consumers uh, are. And so that's why you're seeing these enormous explosion in trends in these uh, other countries like Brazil, Taiwan, uh, you know, China and the Philippines, uh, because the end users are discovering that that uh, by compromising those IoT devices, whether the routers or cameras, um, they can compromise many more devices and have a much larger impact on on being able to use those devices for malicious purposes. All right, Dale Drew, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Vince Chrysler. He's the CEO of Dark Cubed, a startup cybersecurity company looking to make their mark with an easily deployed, cost-conscious cybersecurity platform. Mr. Chrysler also served as Director of Information Assurance for the White House's Executive Office of the President and was responsible for the creation of the first-ever Cybersecurity Operations Center to protect White House networks. We began our conversation talking about the U.S. DHS's Grizzly Step Report, attributing compromises to Russian threat activity. What really interested me was looking at the IPs that were released, and there were about 876 of them in that document, and to see what we could learn from the information that was released about the threat actors and about the infrastructure that they were using. The first step that I performed looking at that analysis was just what what sort of infrastructure are those IP addresses related to? And that was a quick and simple execute a reverse DNS lookup on all those IPs and then parse that out into a graph analysis where we're able to look at the top level domain, .com, .net, .edu, uh, looking down at the domain uh, and then looking down at the subdomains and relating those all together. And so we were able to see there the influence of some of the online hosting providers and also, in a lot of those reverse DNS entries, I started to see a lot of Tor exit node sorts of information, which caused me to jump very quickly into looking at the uh, like the, the Dan Tor nodes UK list and doing a mashup to see how many of those IPs actually were showing up as Tor nodes, which ended up being right around 25%, as I reported and as other people have reported. What's the insight to be gained from that percentage of Tor nodes? So I think there are a couple really important takeaways for me in that that high level analysis. And that is, you know, in 2017, there's a lot of really cheap, easy to use virtualized infrastructure out there. Services like Scaleway and DigitalOcean will let people stand up a server within minutes and they can attack targets at will. And then they can take that infrastructure down and then the next day somebody else is using that IP for something completely legitimate. And so the key concern for me is we, we've had a big focus over the last five years or so on information sharing within our community. 
time matters now. So this IP address was known to be bad during these couple of minutes, but before or after that, it doesn't matter anymore. And unless we figure out how to solve that problem, we, we end up with this, this problem in these cyber indicators that I'm calling noise, where you know we saw it with the Vermont power utility, where when you search for those indicators on your system, you get hits and you're like, oh no, we've been hit by the Russians. And then you actually look back through and you say, no, this was actually something different. And so how do we get that noise out of the system? And I'm, I'm really passionate about this noise issue because everybody assumes that companies around the world have analysts sitting at a table that are looking at these shared indicators that are saying, okay, this is good, this is bad. But the reality is only the largest of the large companies have teams of analysts that can do that work and can manage through those false positives. Everybody else is kind of left at the mercy of trying to trust that data. And when they can't trust that data, it actually causes more harm than good. Do you think there's a, an issue with um, chasing shiny objects, you know, as opposed to uh, basic blocking and tackling? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's very easy. Again, just like there are a lot of products out there that are focused on really hard problems that, that do a great job. I'm not disparaging these products because they do a great job of, of addressing very sophisticated threats. This, this creates this shiny object problem where it's you need to do these five things. You need to do these 10 things. You need to do these, these 15 or 20 security controls. But the problem with kind of boiling down cybersecurity risk into the top five, top 10, top 20 is every company's different. And if you just say these top 20 things are the most important to focus on and you're going to manage 80% of your risk, the adversaries are just going to move to something else and the companies will have spent all their time, money and energy kind of solving risk when the adversary just moves around them. This isn't about just putting a technology control in place. This is about managing risk to a company. And that's not necessarily a core IT function. Us IT folks are good at solving problems with technology, but we also create other problems and we miss things. Um, I'm curious, if I make a switch gears a little bit, um, I'm curious about your, uh, your experience in the White House. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was quite, a, quite an interesting experience. I got there in um, probably September of 07, and I was there through March of 09. And so it's a little over eight years ago that I started, and I, I got to go through an, an amazing but traumatic experience called presidential transition, which a lot of folks are going through right now. <laughs> and there are so many things that happen behind the scenes that people don't realize. And, you know, this is this is, you know, it's the largest peaceful transfer of power in the world. And it's a, it's a pretty phenomenal event to watch. But from a technology perspective, if you think about every IT system that's at the, the White House, whether it is, you know, the the. The system that's using the that's storing the president's diary to email to uh, file stores and everything is subject to records requirements under the Federal Records Act or Presidential Records Act. And for those things that are subject to the Presidential Records Act, which are all the political appointees information that has to be off the network by by the time the inauguration happens. And and you all were were doing you know you were you were blazing a trail there when you were there yes. Yeah, I think what's really fascinating to me about presidential transitions and the last couple, you know, when we think about eight-year time gaps, if you think about the technology advancements that happen in eight years. So when President Bush took over from President Clinton, there was Lotus Notes in place and there was limited mobile capability. And then you fast forward eight years and everybody's on Blackberries and you're talking web apps and all of the advancement that happened in just eight years. And to manage 
to, to see that change that happens in those eight-year increments is incredible. And the stuff that the folks for the Obama administration are dealing with now with you know, social media engagement and all of the other online applications and data, data stores that have to be archived and backed up because it's a part of our American history story. It's just incredible to see that speed of change in technology that happens. That's Vince Chrysler from Dark Cubed. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.